0: Economic indicators. Who
1: knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
2: This podcast is powered by ACAST. We are
1: We Lyrics! Lyrics! We won't get any uh, accolades. Let's say the Mercury Music Prize we will not get for marching all together.
2: 16 years, Max, 16 I know, long John, years. John, it
1: has been, it was really funny. It was Friday night, Yeah. our old mate John McCormick, big yeah. Leeds fan, Oh, like myself, is yeah. oh, big time. And my phone started binging <laughs> at about nine o'clock, bing, bing, bing.
2: Well, Al is a huge Leeds fan and he's already planning... Look, Ellen Road Trips.
1: Ellen Road Trips, isn't well, take me, take me. But yep. Ellen Road Trips, I mean, Leeds is like, sporting Leeds is like having a virus, right? It's an unpleasant experience. <laughs> it's something you pick up young and you can't shake. And your entire football framing is framing memories, right? Rather than the reality and the actuality. But it's going to be quite interesting. You know, next year, Leeds going to win the Premiership.
2: Well, if Leicester can do it.
1: <laughs> That's true, actually. But where did the Leeds love come from when we were kids John right in Windsor Park Leeds were the team to follow when we were about four or five years old
2: right because of Johnny Giles
1: well Johnny Giles anchored it in Ireland right and he was always captain of Ireland right the best player we'd ever produced so Leeds you forget were also A premiership or first division champions B they were the team to watch and of course 1974 John Bayern Munich semi-final of what was now the Champions League Right. And the Leeds got dumped out and harsh decisions. And of course the Leeds fans went completely bonkers. Right. And thus giving Leeds the legacy of rather difficult fans. And I, of course when I was living in London, I used to see them every time I could. Yeah. And I go my Todd as well. <laughs> because the Leeds head was always sweet. Really... It was then when I noticed like there was something about the fans. But anyway, the point is: any long-suffering fan of any football team that has spent it's like Biblical, we're 20 years in the wilderness yeah, eating yeah. manna, and then <laughs> Moses parted the waves. We did a deal with the Pharaoh, and uh, now it's all good. So we'll Excellent. see. We'll see.
2: Because I, I, I saw all the tweets for MOT, and I was going,
1: MOT? MOT is marching on together. Yeah,
2: I thought it was to do with the car. You know, they do your MOT for the car in London. Well,
1: when I got I exactly, I put, out, I put out MOT the other time on Twitter, and I was like, "Mima." Yeah. <laughs> Who's ma? My ma? Okay. M-O-T is not me ma. Nor yeah. the motor whatever test we Yeah, in England. So the NCT. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: How was your week, Sunshine? Week was interesting. It was a really interesting week. And actually, let me give you a little update. We got a huge reaction from the Marla Dukran interview we did. Yes, we did, yeah. yeah. And it I was really brilliant. Everyone was are up in arms. But anyway... What is interesting is we contacted a few MEPs, and in fairness, Barry Andrews and a few other MEPs have come back.
1: Was it Claire Daly came back? Claire
2: Daly came back as well, and I know they were beginning to talk to Marla. And I oh, think that's good. And are they going to? I hope so. Yeah, I raise think it, this in the European Parliament. Yep, they were talking about putting questions forward. And the,
1: and the idea, Marla's idea, is that the European policy towards small post-colonial, definitely non-white countries is different to its policy, A, internally, and B, towards big countries.
2: Yeah. And, And Marla's big gripe as well was that the European Union are setting a whole load of terms and conditions unilaterally and are moving the goalposts for the likes of these small countries.
1: And she was also saying that small countries, and it's, again, dovetails into what's happening the last couple of days here, is that small countries have an absolutely legitimate right to use their tax system in order to attract in capital. Yeah. And she's saying, you guys in Ireland have been doing this for years. We're trying to do it in the Caribbean and the EU is penalising us yeah. with no recourse.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. So hopefully, let's get the conversation going. Yeah. And then hopefully, we'll get some results out of
1: it. It'll be brilliant. But you know, the, the, again, it brings us, John, to the Apple tax decision here, Yeah. Right? Because I've always believed that if any country or city-state or region displays growth rates and achieves growth rates that are over and above the growth rates of its neighbours, it's usually deploying some trick or some innovation or some policy that other people are not deploying to propel that wealth forward. Now, we in Ireland happen to do this in a huge measure by what they call tax arbitrage, which is playing the tax game. But I think, you know in the overall league of crimes you think you think of how most countries historically have got rich like the french basically took over half of africa right yeah, yeah. the dutch at gunpoint pillaged all the resources of borneo and indonesia yeah the belgians i mean i've been reading about the belgians in the congo the belgians were chopping off people's arms men Jesus. women and children to terrify them into increasing rubber production. This is the heart of darkness. This stuff. is the heart of darkness. This is, the, yeah. this is what Roger Caseman exposed. Yeah. Right, these are what countries did to get rich. The Brits, of course, the most fantastic thing. The Brits took over India. Do you know that India was 31% of global GDP when the Brits arrived? And when they left, it was 2%. Jesus. So for the wow. vast majority of known history, there's a guy called Madison, yeah. Great statistician. And he has GDP figures. And this is really nerdy, John.
2: Right. Back, oh, wait, I'll only give you a couple of minutes. Okay.
1: Back <laughs> to the time of Jesus. What was right. GDP? And for 80% of that time, India was the biggest economy in the world. The wow. biggest economy, right? The Brits arrived in. It was minuscule. They totally plundered. it. As Shashi, who we had on the show a while ago, said, yeah. look, you know, don't give me this. You gave us the railways. You destroyed our industries, and you took all. So what I'm saying is, countries have always deployed some advantage mm. to try and get rich. And you think about us. There's, there's a lot of hand wringing about Ireland and tax and right. Using your tax is a legitimate way because it's an innovation in yeah. some way. Yeah, and even if you go back to like, you know, like medieval Florence which okay. became this unbelievably wealthy place. And you think, how did they do that? What did they use? What trick did they use? And the trick, John, this is an interesting one, the trick that the medieval Florentines used was an understanding of the magic power of piss. Huh? Yes, you, Ryan, right? So, ah, so I tell you, right, this is, the, again, innovations are fascinating, right? The Florentines discovered a couple of Florentine lads we're going to the East. You remember know, Marco Polo goes to the East? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. All young fellas were going to the East. It was like going on a J one years right. ago, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> you'd go to you'd go to Turkey, what is that? Turkey, and Istanbul yeah, work and all in the. We're in the kitchens, exactly, right? And one guy was going through this is the this is the legend, was in what they call Asia Minor, so mm. around Turkey. And he goes for a piss. And he pees on what he thinks are grass or weeds. Yeah. And these weeds go purple. Right. Okay. That's a special lichen that when combined with piss, with the potassium in piss, goes purple. And he figured out if we bring these lichen home, think about this, right, to Florence, we can dye clothes with the purple dye that's running out of the lichen. And all we need is piss, right? But think (laughs) about this, right? And that's what they did. And the Florentines brought this back in the 13th century. right? They cultivated the lichens. right. It was called the Rucellai Gardens in Florence. It's well known, right? Right, okay. They then collected piss. And then you think, isn't that really weird? Then you go back to the Romans. The Romans also understood the amazing power of piss. The Romans used to, I know this sounds weird, it's a family show. Go on. Wash their teeth with piss. Because of the ammonia. Because the ammonia made their teeth white. Wow. Isn't that interesting? And the the Romans... Didn't do much for their breath, It didn't do much for their breath, but they made the teeth. They had great teeth. (laughs) They had great teeth, right? And Vespasian, the emperor, there was an an official job in Rome of the piss collector. Right. Right. So you went to the public jacksons and you collected piss, right? And you sold it. Was that a a kind of a high job? Yeah, it was uh, was was up there with barristers. Right. High status occupation And well listen So Vespasian said Okay And he was trying to Because Vespasian Was one of the great emperors That expanded the Roman Empire Right When you expand the Roman Empire You need money So you're going to tax everything So he taxed piss Right Right. And he And the Romans (laughs) Can't afford to go for piss Yeah And all his And all his Exactly And all his All his advisors Said oh you can't tax piss And came out with a great expression Pecunia non olet, which is a great Roman expression. means that money does not smell. So even right. if I raise money from piss, it doesn't smell because it's right. money. So my point is to go back to our tax thing, right? <laughs> right. The point is, Vespasian was pragmatic. Yeah. Right? He said, look, if there is a value in this, I will use this. If you want to use it, use it for your washing your teeth. Right? The Romans used piss for all sorts of stuff, right? Yeah. But again, the Florentines discovered the combination of a certain lichen and potassium creates the color purple. Now why was that a huge huge deal? It was because the color purple purple was always the royal exactly Yes,
2: that's right. And why yeah.
1: was purple always the royal because normally you need in order to generate purple you know the do you know this squid ink risotto
3: Yes right yes. black
1: risotto yeah, right? yeah yeah keep that in your head, right? there was a certain snail that was harvested around Tyre. Tyres in South Lebanon. Now, right. right? Yeah. Which we when spoke you squeeze the snail, it secreted a purple dye. But it was incredibly expensive. So the Florentines discovered, much more importantly than rich man's purple, they discovered how to make poor man's purple using pea. Right. Okay. So my, my thing is, Innovations come in the weirdest places. Yeah. And you have to be pragmatic about them. And you think, okay, so Ireland uses its tax system. And I know lots of people on the left and lots of people believe that Ireland is in some way culpable of robbing money from other people. Yeah. Right? And that was, in effect, the European Commission's argument, the Apple tax argument. Yeah, yeah. But what I say is that all through history, countries have done what they can to enrich... Are increase the prosperity of their own citizens. Now, you remember before we had multinationals in Ireland. Yeah. Ireland had no capital yeah. and lots of people. The reason we had no capital is when the Brits left here, they didn't just take their army and their police and whatever. They took their capital too. Yeah,
3: of they course. They took their yeah, money yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah.
1: So this country started with no capital, right? Which is terrifying so if you we, think about So we would loads of workers, but
2: nowhere for them to work. Exactly. So yeah. what
1: happened then? Where did they go? They emigrate. Mm. So that's why the extraordinary figure of two out of three people born in this country from 1920 to 1940 emigrated. Isn't that extraordinary?
2: Two out of three.
1: Yeah. Wow. Isn't that extraordinary, right? People emigrated. 500,000 people emigrated from Ireland in the 1950s alone to England. Just to England. Yeah. Which is why, you know, we're talking about Jackie Charlton. The entire Jackie Charlton football team were the sons of the people who emigrated in the fifties? Yeah, right. That's exactly who they were. You know, that's that's who 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 the the main phalanx of that team were basically the kids of people who emigrated. Yeah. Right. So as so long it's, like,
2: it's a different twist to footballs coming home. Then isn't
1: it's it? footballs going away. <laughs> <laughs> but it is interesting. So if you don't have capital, and this is the problem for many many countries, and you have a high growth rate of the population, you export your people. Right. So we had to figure out. What do we do with the capital? Now, what happens in a country with l- very limited capital is the capital becomes hoarded,
3: right? Yeah.
1: And the reason it's being hoarded is because interest rates tend to be very high because people are worried about capital flight. Mm. So when interest rates are very high, the people with capital just leave the money on deposit. Of course, yeah, yeah. So that amplifies the inequality. So the rich get richer by virtue of just waiting. Do nothing. Doing nothing. nothing. Yeah. And the poor emigrate. And that was the story of Ireland. Until we decided... Can we bring capital into this country? If we don't have our own capital, where do we find it? You've got to get somebody else's capital. Yeah. Okay, so how could you attract capital into Ireland? You make it cheaper. How do you make it cheaper? You tax it less. So the idea is you tax capital less to bring it into the country. Yeah. And then you fuse that new capital with your labour, your own people, and you begin to see this virtuous movement where... You have new companies, those new companies pay their own taxes, you have VAT, you have income tax, you have all sorts of things, and suddenly your tax base increases dramatically from that one decision, which is you make tax, you use tax to make capital cheap, and in short order, let's say between 1980 and 1995, this economy takes off. Who did make that decision then to spark it off? There are a number of people. One, they believe that originally in the late fifties, a guy called Whitaker. Oh yes, yeah. yeah. But I actually don't believe that, right? Because Whitaker and Lamass. This is this is part of the Irish myth. There was a thing that Whitaker and Lamass unveiled this great policy in nineteen fifty eight, and that caused the economy to turn around. The economy didn't turn around until nineteen eighty eight. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this idea that Whitaker and Lamass were actually crucial. I don't buy that. Right, okay. I think what happened was after the late 80s, he was definitely involved. There's no mm-hmm. doubt of that, you know. After the late 80s, we became much more aggressive in using this policy. But we got lucky. And the reason we got lucky was the following. Up until the fall of the Berlin Wall, mm-hmm. lots and lots of companies regarded globalization as a little bit alien to them. Right. Once the Berlin Wall collapses, you get an era of globalization. And it's only in that period does the Irish tax advantage kick in. Okay, It's really interesting. At the time, everyone thought that the main beneficiaries of the fall of the Berlin Wall were going to be East Germany, Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, all these. In fact, Ireland was the major beneficiary of the fall of the Berlin Wall because once the Berlin Wall came down, American corporations decided, okay, we're going to become much more global. In fact, it was an American hegemony to use that expression, yeah. through the 90s yeah. and into the early 2000s, American companies started to play around with their supply chains. They started to find places around the world that they could actually invest in, and they arrived here. So much more plausible is the explanation that we got lucky by virtue of international events. Yeah. But the, the main point now is that if you have a vibrant economy, you have a vibrant tax base, and the tax base then allows you to do things. So I'll just give you a few figures on multinationals. Yeah. Because there's a lot of talk, even in, in Ireland, about how multinationals are bad and multinationals are this and that yeah, and the other. Yeah, yeah. Right? Give you a few figures, right? Ireland is, Ireland's corporation tax take will be around 10 billion in the next year or two.
3: Per year. Right. right?
1: That's 2,000 euros per head of population just from corporation tax alone right. from multinationals, right? Also, multinationals pay 8 billion in wages every year. Eight billion. They pay. They probably spend another four billion on Irish contractors building Intel's plants. Sure. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they have about another four billion on capital projects every year, building stuff, building so this factories is every
2: year. So that's what you're talking about—about about thirty billion. And we're there.
1: talking a bit between the figures aren't absolute, but it's definitely between 22 twenty-five billion right. a year coming in here every year by multinationals. So this idea that multinationals are bad for Ireland is ludicrous. And if the tax system is what is the main driver, we, I think, John, need to be very careful in the future about what we give away, what we acquiesce to. And if, for example, it means the stuff that really annoys the commission, like Apple having shelf companies here and driving phantom profits through that, yeah, we should then, I think, roll over on those arguments, you know? Hmm. So the idea is why inflame your partners
2: unnecessarily? Sure. Tell me a little bit more about the decision and what it means in the long term. And also, we spoke before about this, and you always talked about the benefits of taking that money that, if you lost that, the case, yeah. If you okay, if you lost the case, but you, like it was thirteen billion that could build all the houses we need, all the schools, all the children's hospitals, all, all that, that, kind that stuff. stuff. Yeah. So
1: the way you look at tax, like tax is not just about in economics; it's not just about raising revenue. So it's not a static idea; it's a dynamic idea that it's part of a long-term policy. Right. So the question was: is then could Ireland have remained the epicenter of foreign investment in Europe, which it is now, had we lost that case, had Ireland been seen to have had a sweetheart deal with Apple, had Ireland's tax system been seen to be very shoddy, had Ireland's Department of Revenue seen to be very shoddy, I think no. I think it would have profoundly tempered our brand. And Mm. then that would have a ripple effect. Because the interesting thing is Ireland now has become a home to so much capital investment. I'll give you a statistic, right? American corporations have invested more in Ireland, think about this, than they have in China, Brazil, Russia, and India combined. Wow, really? Combined over $450 billion of investment, right? That's how big it is. Yeah. That's how transformative this policy has been. And it's about $25 billion. A year. A year. Ongoing, right? So, this is hugely important to us. And then, of course, what happens is is this thing in economics called network effects that company A is here, then company B comes here, not because we're fantastic, but because company A is here. So, Google comes here because Facebook's here. Yes. Twitter comes here because Facebook's here, right? Facebook's here because they heard from somebody else that this was a good place. So, you have these, it's what Alfred Marshall, the great British economist, talked about, you can't put your finger on it, but you said, something's in the air. Right, right yeah. That people come, so basically it's 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 why places like London still have great financial centers, right, is that people feel if they're not in London, they'll miss the deal. Yeah, they'll yeah, yeah. They'll miss vi- the vibe, the yeah. buzz, right? So once you create these network effects, they become self-perpetuating. And because they've been built up on a tax policy, that tax policy should be defended at all costs for us. Now, then the question comes, okay, so that 13 billion, the so-called 13 billion, Mm. the idea that that was just waiting for us to spend... Yeah, was it not? No, because the whole point of the Commission's argument was that was not Ireland's money. That money was generated by Apple sales in the European Union. Right. Those sales were driven through a company here in Ireland, but there was no evidence that the company in Ireland was producing the goods, right? And we argued that it was intellectual capital, right? And now I think it's a slightly, sleight of hand argument, but the court said, no, the Irish are right in this. So what would have happened had we lost is the 13 billion would have been divvied up with other European countries. Oh, okay. And that was never really explained. No, that was never explained. I didn't didn't fully appreciate that. How much would we have got? I don't know. I don't know, but I mean if you were to apportion it on the basis of population, right, let's say the Commission yeah, won hands phases. down, yeah. we would have got 5 4% of 13 billion yeah. and had our reputation destroyed as a place to do business. So the stakes were high.
2: So where do we go from here?
1: Where, what does that mean for, well, I think it's, for us? I think it's, it's winning the battle, not the war, is my own understanding. That basically, the EU came after us on the basis of what they call state aids, that Ireland was having sweetheart deals orchestrated by the states yeah. for specific companies, in this case, Apple. The court ruled that out, said, no, that's not the case. The EU, probably the commission, cause for Stagger, who was the Danish commission, yeah, yeah. this is her thing. They'll probably come after Ireland. Now, they lost on the state aid issue. They'll probably have a second appeal or an appeal based on what they call the internal market criteria, which is the level playing field. Right. And that is another fight. My sense is that having lost the big battle, the European Commission's lawyers will not be very confident about the second battle. Okay. But it's ongoing. What I want to do now, John, is just to give Irish people a sense of what's at stake here. Okay. And how significant the transformation has been of the economy driven by multinationals. This is not small peanuts. This is not small fare. This is the heart and soul of this economy. And I understand lots of people say the multinationals are treated differently to us. And if you're small business, it's up to us to treat our small businesses like we treat multinationals. Right. That's the cure to the virus rather than attacking the multinationals and then the small businesses who are receiving wages and contracts from the multinationals
2: Right, lose
1: yeah. out. So it's lose-lose if we lose this.
0: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare Short-Term Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: Mac, you were talking there about kind of multinationals, looking after the how we look after the multinationals, but we're kind of leaving the SMEs almost fend for themselves yeah, in many ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, of course, we've just come out, we're beginning to come out of this lockdown. And now there's talk of going back in again. Yeah. So, you know, with the second wave that everyone's talking about, which has already begun in certain places like Melbourne's lockdown again. And, and the States has gone mad. Oh, the States have gone nuts completely. Yeah, yeah. They should just stop all flights. Please stop flights.
1: Well, I tell you what we'll do. We'll go and talk to Luke O'Neill, but he's not feeling great. Oh. He had a skinful last night. All oh, right, I thought you were going to say he had COVID. No, no, he had a skinful of pints, which is which is which which can be worse, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, like, in fairness, I'd say he was due a skinful of he pints. Was due <laughs> a skinful of pints, Luke. How are you? Not too bad, David. Doing well, Luke. We were talking about Leeds, and I. We can come back to that, but tell me about COVID. Just from my own view, it seems that there was a sense, maybe three weeks ago, maybe even as late as two weeks ago that the virus wasn't so much beaten, but was crushed here in Ireland, yeah. all around Western Europe, particularly the yeah. sunnier parts of the world that people want to travel to. And there was a sense of relief after the lockdown, and we could look forward. That has changed profoundly in the last five or six days. What's happened?
4: Yeah, I think it's a strange one because we were. you're right, David. Two, three weeks ago, we were a really low virus. So it was looking great in Ireland. Uh, and those sentences that the uh, the medical officer would always say, "Oh, well, we still got to be careful," but nobody would listen to the second half of that sentence. All you want to hear, "Oh, things are going good, and let's keep ca- cracking on," I suppose, you know. And then that gave rise to a bit of complacency, maybe, and certainly a feeling that we might be coming out of this was in the air, wasn't it? Yeah, just it's one. It's relentless. All the stories keep coming up. I mean, with the American situation, everybody sees it every day now. The WHO keeps saying, this is still burning. You know, it's accelerating in the world. And then you get a bit of a worry in the back of your mind. You go, hang on a minute. It hasn't gone away at all. It's out there. And then the question is, how do we stop it coming back to us? I mean, there's no doubt we're doing well in Ireland. The numbers are good. We're back into uncertainty David. that's the key thing, I think. And then the second thing to remember is we now know the summer's rolling along here. The autumn's coming. The dreaded schools and everybody's going, Oh God, what's gonna happen then? And I get the impression it's a bit anemic. You're kind of we're kind of bumping around a bit, we're waiting for things to happen, you know. It's a bit like a phony war in many ways at the moment, my, my my sense of it, you know.
1: And tell me, Luke, what are you finding out now as scientists? You're discovering your, you know, day by day, you're getting more and more work. What are you discovering about the nature of COVID?
4: Yeah, the, the good part is that we now know where you catch it for definite. That, that, that's been refined because, you know, ten, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands people have been studied. Where do people pick up this virus? And uh, that makes certain things safe, certain things unsafe. And there's a massive list, actually. The Texas Medical Association have issued a really good list, ranked by risk, you know. Number one, top of the heap are pubs. That's for definite. Pubs and clubs are the most dangerous place by far.
1: Now, why, why is down- that, Luke? Why, tell me exactly why that is.
4: And as I said, if anybody was playing a joke on the Irish, it's a virus that you can't open a pub. Can you believe? Who invented that kind of thing? It seems like nonsense. (laughs) The English did. (laughs) And and, and not only that, you can't sing in a pub either, because that's a high-risk (laughs) practice. So it seems to be especially designed to torment us, I think. um, Well, the reason is it's the three Cs, which the Japanese, to give them credit, early in February issued a very clear public health message, avoid the three Cs, which is closed spaces, crowds, and close contacts. Those are the three Cs. Now, a pub is going to be full of people. They'll be drinking. The main reason pubs are tricky, David, is because alcohol decreases our inhibitions. And that does not con- that's not consistent with social distancing, is it? You put your arm around your mate, you're my best mate. You are, you know. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. Have I ever you start, told you? you start, and he says, Yes, you have. Every time we've had four <laughs> points, you've told me. I know I, I am that creature. Go on.
4: <laughs> and then, of course, we love to shout after two or three points, David. You shout the same story three times at someone, don't you? You know, thinking it's so fantastic. And then, of course. You want to get up close and personal, especially if you're in the dating game. You want to smell someone's aftershave, don't you say? so and, and give give someone a drink into that mix, disaster. <laughs> yeah, you because know, all those, I, tell you, I mean, it's well known, David, when you drink, certain other behaviors change. Let's say driving home, you know, your level for risk, it goes up basically. And you're, you're taking more is because of alcohol. So those are the main reasons we think why you're uh, put. And uh, study after, city after city, even in, in last week in Sydney, There was a pub in Sydney, 28 cases traced to that pub. So we just keep seeing this cropping up the whole time.
1: So what do you think is going to be the next phase now? We're locking down again. There's no pubs for at least another two, maybe three weeks. Who who knows? Yeah. How do you think it's going to just play out?
4: Well, I can't see the pubs opening, David. That's my first prediction. I wouldn't open the pubs now. It's tough on the publicans. Of course it is. And it's a big sector. They need special compensation, actually, because they are being picked on you know, policy-wise. So it'll be unfair not to maintain their businesses as a suspected case because they're such dangerous places. It's just bad luck for them. It's not their fault, is it? Yeah. And there we see the pubs having to close. I can't see the pubs opening is the first thing. The second thing now, we have to watch for these clusters and spikes. That's really important and be ready for them. Now, they will come in from travel. That's the, place, the source of them. And then we've got to control our borders.
1: Because it seems to me that some of the countries on the travel list, Luke, have the same level of COVID or less than us. And we're letting in people from America, from Texas, right, which we know to be a hotspot. And yet we're banning Irish people going to Mediterranean countries, which we also know have more or less got the disease under control. What's that all about?
4: Yeah, it's been very garbled, in my opinion. I mean, you need a very clear message on this, very clear empirical guidance, otherwise you won't bring the people with you. If it's seen as half-baked, the general public will go to hell with this, you know, they don't want to do in there. So, very clear guidance. And the guidance absolutely is they look at the number of cases over the previous seven days. If that hits a certain number, I think it might be 50 or so, then that country's like us, you see. And now that country is designated a green country. And what that means is we can travel between us and them, like you were going down to Kerry or Donegal, say. Now, and then those countries can come into us and not quarantine. That's the key difference. You just, like, you're on anywhere, basically, not even for quarantine. Now, the other countries on the list, like the US, you have two options there, ban them entirely. And to me, that makes perfect sense, I have to say, because that clarifies it hugely. No flights from countries with those numbers. Because it's tricky if you bring them in, you've got to quarantine them. Now, how are you going to do that? And we know that that's very tough. In Melbourne, for example, there's a massive outbreak in Melbourne. It's gone back into a six-week lockdown. Can you believe it? Almost as stringent as the one that we had. And guess where the clusters came from? The quarantine hotels. There were 60 cases in one of those hotels. A security guy in the hotel went home to his family and infected someone, and they infect someone else. So quarantining is tough. The other option is testing. Get them in the airport, test them, maybe twice. You'd keep them for a day or so. And if they test negative on both tests, send them uh, allow them in, you know, and the rest go home. We need that very sort of clear yeah. instruction on Look, this.
1: You just mentioned that because uh, a friend of mine was saying his son travelled from London to Iceland in the last week. Arrived in Iceland gets a swab, gets a text 12 hours later, the text says, you're fine, enjoy Iceland. Could we not do something like that?
4: That's exactly what we want, David, 100%, because that gives us confidence. It's systematic, you know, we have the guy's name in the system and all that kind of thing. So that's exactly what I would do here for those countries outside the green countries. Now, why they aren't doing that, I don't know. Maybe they are. I mean, you might, we might hear, hopefully we'll hear, they will. But if you don't do that, you risk a spike. It's as simple as that, because you can't maintain quarantine. Uh, and then these people could well be infected. They go and remember, there's hardly any immunity out there. So this person gets off the plane, maybe so, "Oh, I'll stay home." It's, it's, I don't think it's even compulsory, isn't it? They, they say it might be kind of compulsory. It's a grey area. They go home and they say, "Effectors," are go to the shop, and then bang, they infect someone in the shop. And that's as simple as I mean. As I just said, we know it's so contagious. This okay. can take off at any moment from someone who's infected.
1: Now, explain to me scientifically, if you imagine the disease to have an old. I know this sounds weird, but to have a brain of its own, and its objective yeah. is to survive, and on the basis yeah. that it needs to pass itself through us to other people, like that—that's obviously the objective of the disease is to live. Like our objective is to live. What is yeah. going on in this disease that makes it different? That makes it so contagious? That makes it yeah. very, very difficult to pin down? Give me, give me some of the science behind it.
4: Yeah, so once a virus goes in your body, its job is to make copies of itself and go inside one of your cells. So it's trying to penetrate your cells anywhere in your body. And there's all these different families of viruses, there's thousands of them, and they all do it slightly differently. And this particular one loves uh, your lungs. So so you breathe it in, beautiful. We're all breathing in and out. Virus goes into your lungs. And then there's a thing called ACE2. ACE2 is the lock if you like, on the lung cell. And the key is opened by the spike protein, virus goes in and it lives inside your lungs. Now it starts to grow there and now goes all over your body. ACE2 is in your heart, it's in your brain, it's in your liver. So the virus will infect any part of your body and now begins to divide. Other viruses use different things. HIV uses a thing called CD4 for this lock you see, and that's on your immune cell. So there's differences. But this one uses ACE2. Now then, how does it spread then? Well, it makes you feel sick. And now you cough and you splutter. That's the usual thing. And now it comes out of your mouth and goes into someone else. This virus is so like a ninja, I suppose the way to put it, you don't need to cough. You just breathe. It comes out. So it's like a, a little fragile little breath comes out, and the virus goes with it. The reason for that is it's up in your nose and in your mouth. It can live up here in your upper airways, and it's in your saliva. You know, we're always it's always shedding. The word is it? shedding. It's shedding out of your cells all the time. And now you breathe. Isn't that horrendous? This is what makes it so dangerous. That doesn't flu isn't like that. Flu you need to have a good cough or a sneeze for it to get out. You know. This one is like cunning, almost like a stealth thing. And that comes out. And that's the way it's built. It's got certain proteins and structures allowing it to do that. The last thing it does that's really cunning, it turns off your immune system. So isn't that even better? Because it doesn't want the immune system, remember, because it'll, that'll, that'll attack it.
1: It turns off your immune system. Because I thought the whole point was that the, you, your immune system identifies there's something alien in here. It goes through its back catalogue of previous diseases. Yeah. Have I seen this geezer before? Oh yeah, I've seen this geezer. Then it releases the antibodies. I've seen the geezer before and they go and have a scrap and hopefully the antibodies yeah. win. And yeah. that's my very rudimentary understanding. of the <laughs> that's immune right. system. No, that's it. You've right. got it, you've got it. <laughs> but you're saying it turns that process off.
4: Absolutely. Wow. But it's modulate, I suppose. Viruses, all viruses are very good at tweaking the immune system for a window of opportunity, you know. In other words, if, if the immune system is really effective, it'll kill the virus completely. The virus will become extinct. You know? so, so through evolution, viruses have evolved little tricks to suppress parts of the immune system to allow it to grow, if you like. It's a bit like, you know, you're, it's a cloaking device over the virus for a while and away. And now the immune system can't see it. And then there's a, a battle then rages. And evolution is, the, the history of this is really fascinating. The immune system has evolved ways to take the cloak off and then see the virus, for example, you know? And this one is especially cunning. I mean, again, if you were to t- so the two two boxes you take here, meaning this one's a hard ass. Uh, the first is you can breathe it out. The second is it can t- it can turn off certain bits of the immune system very cunningly. Now, eventually, of course, we win, don't we? Most people, about what 90% of people, 85%, the immune system does its job. Beats the virus and kills, it. and that's great, and we're all happy with that. Fifteen percent, it gets worse in them, and of course, the big question is why is it especially worse in them? It could be there's a lot of virus on board. So, in other words, instead of having one guy knocking on your door, there's a hundred, and they get in, start wreaking havoc. Um, a second reason is your immune system might be different, and in other words, you might have different genetics. There's a genetic aspects of this. Maybe you're less fit. Maybe like me, you've had five pints. I hope I don't get exposed this morning because I'm at risk of my immune system <laughs> a bit down. Yeah? So, <laughs> so honestly, God, well, I mean, at
1: least so you were de- drinking de- with doctors last night. You know.
4: That's, exactly. yes. Ah, I'm right. glad to see the, <laughs>
1: the, the the entire medical and scientific profession of the Greater Dunleary area is down with uh, gargle-inspired <laughs> immune deficiency.
4: Ah well, no, David. On the positive side, uh, if, if you if you're happy, your immune system goes better. You know, so, so it's a de stressor You see. So that's, <laughs> is that true? Oh yeah, yeah. If you, if, if 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 you're if you're depressed or if you're anxious, right, that suppresses your immune system. That's why people get colds and flus, you know, when they're a bit stressed. So we've known this for quite a while. So having a few drinks with your mates is a good thing, not too many. It's a, it's the law of diminishing returns, though, David, isn't it? <laughs> because eventually it gets worse, you know. But so, um, certainly, lockdown doesn't help that then, because yeah, lockdown
2: exactly. is, is depressing everybody. That's I right, don't. it doesn't.
1: To drink more than we ever. Well, the, before. There you
2: go, yeah. It's a double whammy.
4: We're, but, we're calling our bar the Dublin Lockout. The double Lockout. That's the name of the bar that's that's like in his garden. You know, that's the and
1: is there a big Jim Larkin of your drinking mates?
4: We should. We should get a statue of Jim. By the way, I bought him a little toy to celebrate the opening of the bar, David. It's the Child of Prague. I got one in. <laughs> that's on the shelf. you got
1: to call it Prague as well.
4: Oh, Prague. Right,
1: yeah. I'm telling you, it can't be this Prague. It can't be well-pronounced. Did you have a Child of Prague? Oh, yeah, well, we did, oh, of I'm course. Yeah. There's something about rain in Childs of Prague, isn't there? Yeah, you put, yeah, it,
2: yeah. Out you put it out in the garden the night before the wedding. Isn't that what it is? Yeah, we're, so we're, this- we're doing
1: experiments
4: today. We are, we are scientists. We're, we're putting it out in the garden and hoping it's going to be sunny tomorrow. You know, that's the uh, <laughs> great, great uh,
2: <laughs> I was reading something there during the week that there are actually five different versions of COVID. Does that mean that it's, it's evolving in some sort of way or developing?
4: Yes, but it is changing. Every time it divides uh, the recipe to make it, a letter changes in the recipe is a good way to put it. But that's, uh, every organism has a recipe to make itself, and, the, and it's called DNA in humans, by the way. This one has RNA as the name of its recipe. Right. There are 30 million letters. Not, I'm not joking. You, 30 million letters in its this recipe. This, this is true. These letters are chemical letters, okay? And when it, when it, when it replicates or copies itself, it makes a copy of all those letters and we get the second virus. Sometimes one or two letters change. By a random process, and yeah. that's why it's changing. And, and then and, and amazingly enough, another thing it has cunning fact number three about this damn virus, it can correct any errors. It's very good at correcting those. It's like a proofreader, it's got its own proofreader, which flu hasn't got, for instance. So see, it, it doesn't want to mutate because it might mutate into a dead form, you know, a less active form. And it doesn't want to get stronger either, by the way, because if it gets more dangerous, it kills you, and then it hasn't got there's no house to live in, you know. So so that rate of change, then we think is very wow. slow in this virus, which is a good thing.
1: Luke, can I just ask at the very end before you go, uh, the vaccine, what, what's your sense?
4: Yes, well, well, there was good news this week, they were for definite. They were waiting, every bloody hour I'm waiting for an update on these things. And I'm, it comes into my iPhone. I'm on a special uh, special vaccine development group, uh, another one to keep you annoying. But anyway, every, um, every 20 Do you ever make the Yuppie
1: WhatsApp name for the special vaccine group, by the way, or is it is, it, it's called the special that vaccine boring. group? Yeah, uh, yeah,
4: yeah, it's... No, it should be called warp speed. <laughs> <laughs> but um, anyway, every 20 minutes, ping, ping, ping. Now, uh, this week, the, the big step up this week, we've jumped a couple of very important fences for the vaccine business. So one is the Oxford vaccine, which is being done with AstraZeneca. That's the company developing it. They're about to publish. We haven't seen the paper yet, though, sadly. It was a press release more than the publication. I think it's out on Monday or later in the week. That, that paper says they got a good response in humans with their vaccine. It's just giving the vaccine to humans and you measure the immune response. They got antibodies, loads of them, and they got these things called T cells. Now, T cells are very, very important. It's a bit like... um. If it's a war going on, the T cells are the bombers, dropping planes on the virus, you know. The antibodies are the troops on the ground, and now we got both, and that's a brilliant development because you need both to to finish off the enemy. You need both, and that's the first time a vaccine has been shown to do that. So we're very glad with that. And it's still early days. In fact, Oxford are about to start a challenge trial, David, when they give someone the infection and then uh, you know, vaccinate them, and then try and infect them. You know, that's that's a dangerous thing to do with it this virus. It's no cure. So it
1: sounds like, a, like they, an American frat party.
4: Yeah, exactly. They've just announced that. They're going to try, they're going to volunteer people for that. Now, it's young people probably won't get that sick. They do this with malaria, for instance, but then you've got an anti-malarial if you you get sick, you see. In this case, you have no treatments. That's how rapid and and desperate they are in a way. So it just shows you how fast it's going to go. So the Oxford one's going great. I'd say that one's ahead of the pack now at the moment. And then secondly, Moderna, this company in the US, whose share price they have tripled in the past week, by the way with this announcement, so they're going very well. Uh, They had a result as well from their vaccine trial. And again, they got a very strong antibody response. They managed to get the three times the antibody in the blood of someone who's severely affected. Do you know what I mean? In other words, we've now broken the ceiling on antibody levels with this vaccine. That's great, because now you're really souping the whole thing up. And again, it's going to go ahead. They're about to start a phase three trial. 30,000 people now will begin. They saw some side effects, it must be said. Uh, like injection site reactions. You know, when you have a vaccine, you feel a bit fluey sometimes. Yeah. a bit sort of yeah, yeah. Um, Similar, very similar. But, but-, but we do worry about that because it was a small number of people. One or two looked a little bit severe to me. So that's one to watch. Now, it wasn't bad that to, to stop it, you know. But still, we. this is the key question. Now, do you get efficacy? Now, efficacy means, can you see the immune system being triggered? And then secondly, is it safe? And both of those vaccines have jumped those fences. So now we press on. And now the ultimate test, will it stop you getting infected in the wild? And if that happens, gangbusters, we've made it. Now, the timelines for that, they could be there by December, you know, both of those vaccines, the way things are going. So if nothing goes wrong. Now, as we know in life, everything looks great and then you fall over at the last fence or whatever. So so you got to be cautious. The op- Fauci himself, and he's, not, he's a very measured man. He, he said he's cautiously optimistic. And I said, what? Oh, that sounds good. If, if Tony Fauci is saying cautious optimism, I thought that was a good sign. So this week, we're all highest kites on the vaccine business this week. Next week, back down again I bet you no hopefully not hopefully it'll stay up high
1: so we'll see Luke can I ask you one last question before we go on on Fauci you know Fauci I do I do indeed what sort of guy is he because he's right now he's caught in this crazy the White House against Fauci nonsense what sort of guy is he He's a very serious,
4: somber kind of guy, as you might gather from him. You know, like I, I met him twice over the years, and I'd have a cup of co- I, mean, I have a cup of coffee with him, and we didn't talk about much except our research. He's very focused, you see. So there wasn't much, there wasn't much banter. There was but be no that.
1: Leeds United. Uh, the fact no. that did you did you no. remind him that you look like Glenn Hoddle in a previous life? <laughs> no, no, I, I
4: sure have. No, I was. I, but I, you know, do you ever know think you meet someone serious and you try and lighten it a bit, and then it falls flat? I'll oh, tell no, me, you tell
3: me about it. <laughs>
4: <laughs> back 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 onto the antibodies and the t cells again you know yeah. but he's he's a famous guy he's like bruce springsteen to me you see because he worked <laughs> on hiv in the in the very early days of hiv he was the guy he he was the one who found the antiretroviral drugs you know
1: i didn't realize that so he himself is a really good researcher is he and a really oh, yeah, yeah. proper medic and he was a and in the, at that time,
4: um, he, he, he was leading it. There's been like, they do now, trials for drugs. And he, he led the big one for the antiretroviral. And he was being attacked viciously then, right? And the gay rights movement were accusing the government of doing nothing. You know, they're dragging their heels. And he himself was attacked. We're going too slow. And he kept saying, I'm doing the best I can. You know, these things have to be done carefully. And eventually he felt so bad and he felt he, he admitted that he made some mistakes to give him credit, right? He said, oh, i got something wrong here. He then decided to give all the drugs away for free while the trial was still running, which is quite a dangerous thing to do because of such desperation. It's like that movie Dallas Buyers Club, you know? Yes, that, that's really, yeah. he, he was in the He was in the mix of all that, you see. Wow, so,
1: I didn't know that. So he's got a really yeah. interesting backstory. Absolutely,
4: yeah, and 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 then he, he was given great credit because he had made mistakes, and he and he could have been kicked out, I suppose, and he, he admitted them, you know, and then he, he put things right. He, he set up a special fund to fund drugs for, for gay men who couldn't afford them and couldn't get access to the uh, the drugs that were in trials, and that that that's how we remember him. And then not only that, he's discovered all this stuff about the immune system that I'm envious of. He, he's published about a thousand papers in immunology. You see, so for us he was like a always a hero, and he's head of that institute. You know, his, his, his budget today was about hundred billion in his unit. That's what? how much he has to spend
1: there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. But well, he's head of so immunology. But he's getting attacked by Donald Trump. I mean, what did this well, go through well, his head?
4: Well, they can't, Trump can't really touch him, David, you know, because he's, he's a public employee, right? Because he works for the government effectively in research. He's in this big research institute that the, that the US government supports. It's called the NIH. It's the biggest institute in the world now for health, for medical research. And he works for them. And his boss then is Dr. Francis Collins. The, 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 they're saying if Trump is really annoyed with them, He'll convince Francis Collins to reassign him to be a janitor, you know, something like that. Because they can't fire him; <laughs> they've right. no grounds to fire him. At, you know, but I, th- I think he'll stand his ground, David, and and he won't take any crap. I'll tell you that much. And his, his family have been threatened. All this hate stuff is coming at him the whole time. He had to have a security detail recently, for instance, because these far right are him of a wrecking the economy, you know. So when this all ends, they got to put statues up to Tony. If statues are still allowed, I'll tell you. <laughs> because he, And the great thing, David, is we love him. It's all just science-based. All he says is the science. And when he says he doesn't know, he doesn't know. And this might be right. And do know this bit here. And then it's a bit like Hooligan. I mean, the odd hint of optimism comes out every so often from him just to keep us going. So he's very sort of a, very skilled kind of person, I think. And, and then the world needs it desperately because this is the biggest country in the world doing all the research. The, the biggest irony, David, is it's running rampant in the US, right? As we know, but they're, they're the biggest country for biomedical research, like by a, by, a, by a log order. And they're doing all the research. They they may get the vaccine first, remember, in the US. So the antiviral drug and, and and Gilead or a, a U.S. company making remdesivir antiviral, Moderna or a Boston company making the vaccine. So so even though it looks like a, a, a nightmare over there, it's American science that might save us.
1: Luke, we will leave it there. Take exactly. care. <laughs> <laughs> Luke, Man. your star. Cheers, Thanks,
4: Luke. Yeah. Bye. All Thanks, John. Cheers. Yeah, see you guys.
2: Luke is always value for money there, isn't he?
1: I just love all the medics dancing around the child of Prague. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I'd say they went loopy yeah, th- last yeah. night. Oh, absolutely. But you know what's funny, though, is like just talking about going back into lockdowns and all of us. I'm actually finding this period. What are we in? Phase three, phase oh, four. Yeah. Harder than the full on lockdown because we're kind of betwixt and between. We're allowed to go out. We're allowed to see some people again. But the pubs aren't open and, and properly unless you go in for a f- full blown nine quid meal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, but do you know what I mean? It's it's kind of, we're not really sure. There's no real clear...
1: Well, there is no clarity. I mean, and Sean, and that is one of the even bigger problems now with how you get out of this recovery. Because if you look at what happens in a normal recession, right? Mm. Economy goes from growing, people spend a little bit too much, they get really, really confident, over-optimistic about things, they make mistakes, suddenly... The price of assets, for example, the house price thing, the, yeah. the, ten years ago start to fall. People then retrench. So a recession is nothing more than people not spending, increasing savings of the income they have, yeah. right? And then what happens is we all start saving at the same time. Demand collapses, and that happens for a period. And then, as kind of night follows day, human nature is such that you. Sort of say, well, maybe things are not that bad. And you say, okay, well, I'll take some of that savings and I'll maybe open a little cafe, or I'll maybe do this, that, the yeah. you begin the process of opening up. So, so that's of- what that's what basically a recovery is. A yeah. recovery is the increased incident of positive human sentiments. That's all it is, right? Mm. There's always said about the human nature, right? So a recession is we get depressed together, a recovery is we start getting a little bit more optimistic together. Now, part of that optimism. Is going out. Think Good. about it, because consumer spending is sixty percent of GDP in the modern economy,
3: right? Yeah.
1: So if consumer spending, which is retail, talked about it last week, the crack economy, the crack
2: economy, going yeah. out,
1: taking a weekend away, going on holidays, all that stuff, yeah. right? If that, then normally what that triggers is increased optimism from other people because you spend in their shop, they say okay. I'm feeling better off than they spend. So the trigger of recovery is actually going out. Yeah. The problem with this disease is COVID puts a ceiling on going out. So every time the economy starts to recover and we start to say, well, maybe we should just spend a little bit more. It's the disease, not the economy, that is framing the recovery. And it's the disease that is actually forcing us back into lockdown and it is the disease that means the economy cannot work the way it normally works and that's why unless we get that vaccine we will not recover in any material way and that's terrifying how you doing there it's david here now if you like the stuff we're doing and if you enjoy the podcast and if it adds to your commute or your week or your chats and this that and the other Why don't you support us? There's a new feature on Acast called Acast Supports. And there you can pledge whatever you want. It's a one-time deal. Have a look at Acast Supports. And, you know, myself and John, we'd really appreciate it.
4: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of
1: Pretty Litter.